This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone. Today's episode will be a bit different. I am not talking with a medical expert, but with someone from my community who reached out willing to speak about her life, advocating for her son with autism. She has quite a bit of experience in the educational realm as a teacher and currently stays at home with her four children. Melissa Hammerly is an army wife, postpartum depression survivor, and the ultimate queen of chaos. She loves to advocate for women to love themselves in all of their stages and serve as a reminder that it's okay that life is completely messy. In today's episode, Melissa opens up about life with her son, Parker, who is autistic. She walks us through a typical day, talks about how much she had to advocate for him in the beginning years, and will give us some resources that may help others listening. Let's dive right in. Good morning, Melissa. We are so excited to have you today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. Yes, doing well, doing well. You know, uh, not enough coffee yet. Still 1030 in the morning. (laughs) What time is it where you are? Uh, it's 9.30 here in Texas. I've got my gallon of, anybody who's from here will appreciate this, my gallon of Whataburger Diet Dr. Pepper. So we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that means I go there too often. <laughs> I used to be addicted to Diet Coke for years, for like probably 10 to 12 years. and. Yeah. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to like get off. And then I, when I, whenever I see it now, I'm like, Ooh, that looks real good. Yeah. Like, don't do it, Lindsay. Don't do it. Listen, <laughs> I don't drink coffee. So this is my coffee, but you don't want to see me without the diet, Dr. Pepper in the mornings. No one would yeah, want, you know what? Me. You got to do what you got to do. Listen, I mean, survival is the fittest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So. <laughs> so why don't we just start talking about, you know, what your background is and a little bit about your personal story with all of this before we jump into some of the questions. I think that will really help to set the tone here. Absolutely. So I actually fresh out of college, I worked in family law. So I worked in a position where I interacted with all sorts of different people. Um, and then from there, I moved into education after realizing that family law is a tough business. So I <laughs> so many stories, so little time. I taught high school. I taught family and consumer sciences, which is essentially modern day home ec. So I taught child development, human growth and development, um, education and training, lifetime nutrition and wellness, even though I can't cook a thing. That's all right. <laughs> so basically modern day home ec. And, you know, if I could, if I had to go back into the classroom 100%, I would spend it with our high school students because we don't give those kids enough credit. And they they really are an incredible set of humans if you let them be. So yeah. from there, I ended up getting my master's degree from Texas A&M in what we call educational technology, which is essentially curriculum development, training and development. And I moved into elementary education to expand my resume, if you will. So I taught technology to kindergartners through sixth graders, and you could not pay me enough money to ever do that again. I love them, but I have to wipe my own children's noses. I can't wipe theirs too, okay? It's just too much for me. (laughs) And you can only remind them that the computer is not broken. You just have to hit the power button so many times. So I learned very quickly that those babies, while I love them, are not for me. So after that, I moved into an admin role where I did testing and federal programs, which is uh, testing is everyone's hot topic in education. I was in charge of all of the standardized testing. 
as well as all of the training and development for staff in that retros- in that aspect, excuse me. And then additionally, I handled all of our federal programs. So anything that was grant funded, anything that was funded through the government, my job was to make sure that we were doing what we were supposed to do, that our teachers were holding up their end of the bargain, especially in our special education programs, because if you miss a T or you don't dot that I, they will take that money, which really affects our kids. So mm-hmm. I've kind of sat in both chairs here as a parent. My son Parker is, he'll be seven this July, is diagnosed as autistic. And as well as a teacher and an admin advocating advocating for those kids at the table, that that table in those rooms during those ARD meetings to create individual education plans for those kids. It's a tough room. It's filled with a lot of people making decisions for your kids and sitting on both ends of those tables. I think I have a unique perspective to offer not only as a parent who's been through kind of a traumatic journey, honestly, to get Parker diagnosed, also as an educator, making decisions for your kids and uh, making sure that we're advocating for them and ensuring that we're setting them up for success because especially here in Texas, and I say this as someone who was a part of this uh, process, we're failing a lot of these kids because we're chalking them up to behavioral problems or we don't have the tools to help them. And so we're passing them up through the system and the system is failing them, unfortunately. And I can't speak to that everywhere. We're actually moving to Virginia. We are a military family. So we're in the process of moving during this chaotic time. And we're lucky enough down here. I know everyone sees us on the news, but we're lucky enough to have <laughs> five day a week school and our kids go to school every day. We wear masks just so we get that out of there. No one has to come fill my inbox. But they've actually had a lot of success here with that. And we're lucky enough that that is the case. And so with Parker, especially, he needs that. He needs in person school every single day. It's so important for him. And so we made the decision to kind of split our lives for a little bit. So we're still here finishing out the school year before we head head to the Northeast. And what I what was so interesting is when we started to in, look at whether or not we were going to go ahead and transition or finish out the school year here, uh, something piqued my interest, which I haven't dug too much into, but the school that my kids will go to have autism teachers. And I thought that was the craziest thing I've ever that heard. That is so amazing. It's incredible. And I and so I kind of, you know, did a little <laughs> digging and I went online to look at career opportunities just in case I got a wild hair. Yeah, there you go. There are lots of them. There's so many positions. And so I'm so interested to see how that is designated. It becomes a designated support, what what type of qualification the kids have to have to have access to that resource. So I don't know a lot about it, but I'm definitely, I was surprised to see that. So I do know that there's different opportunities in different places. So of course I'm speaking to my experience here in Texas. I don't know everything about everything, but I certainly have a decent enough background in it. I know you asked about our, our journey to this point and If I'm being honest and frank, which I think is very important, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, this has been the hardest six years of my life. I have learned an incredible amount of things about things I wanted to know nothing about to include our education system, our healthcare system, to be honest with you, and truly, truly trusting mother's intuition, number one, not letting one person tell you no if you think that the answer might be yes, and truly becoming your child's voice when they don't have one. Because Parker can't advocate for himself. He can't tell me, this doesn't feel right, or I'm struggling here. I have to, I have to advocate for that. And mother's intuition, I think, is huge. I think it's powerful. And I think if you don't listen to that gut instinct, you're probably doing yourself and your kids a disservice. Now, it, it, it has failed me a few times, but most of the time I have been right. It's just the truth. I think you you know your kid better than any doctor, better than any nurse, better than any teacher, better than any professional who's probably trying to help you but you know your kid best. And if something doesn't sit well with you, there are others out there that you can go to. And I think that's number one is people don't know that you can do that. So Parker was born July 31st, 2014. 
And he's only 16 and a half months younger than his older sister, Paisley Kate. And so I was in the trenches, right? This was overwhelm on top of overwhelm. I was a young mom. We were freshly married. My husband was in school trying to finish at TCU. And this was a hard time. And so I um, very openly admit that I had postpartum depression and that got worse over the years. And I had a really hard journey with that. But I think that that only makes me more sound of mind now in retrospect. So I was going through a very difficult time. And when I was pregnant with Parker, I had what they call partum depression. So I was depressed while pregnant with him. And which many people don't talk about, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but nobody talks about this. I I had significant, horrible depression with my third during my first trimester. I couldn't even get out of bed. I mean, talk about debilitating. I mean, I I couldn't even pick up my phone to answer a text message and people, you know, are like, oh, she's ignoring us or, you know, whatever they think. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't even say that something was wrong with me, but how it came out was I was also very overweight from just having a baby and then of course having postpartum depression and it went undiagnosed and then partum depression and I was miserable to be quite honest with you and I didn't want I wasn't ready and I didn't want a second child and we also don't talk about how it's okay to feel those feelings sometimes mm-hmm. and I adore mm-hmm. Parker I love him so much and obviously God had a different plan for me than I had for myself here but it was hard and I was miserable and I was probably a miserable mom. I was a miserable wife and I was a miserable human. I alienated everybody and I struggled, but how this came out during my pregnancy was I was convinced that something was wrong with Parker. I was convinced. You couldn't have told me different. And I kept going to my OBGYN who is wonderful by the way, and has delivered all of my children. And I kept going to him and he just kept saying, Melissa, I, you know, I, you're struggling because you're having a baby you're not ready to have. You're struggling because of X, Y, and Z. You're, you have depression. Mm-hmm. You know, we kept going through these circles and I wasn't gaining any weight with him. And he kept saying, Melissa, when you have a little bit, you know, very tactfully, when you're a little bit heavy to start with, it's okay if you don't gain a lot of weight. And I was just convinced something was wrong. And I finally convinced him to do another ultrasound and he was growing and everything was okay. And I just, something didn't sit well with me. And I really, really think that they thought I was crazy. I think my sweet husband, Matt, who I love and has been the most patient human being the last six years, I really think that he started to think that I was losing my mind. It was a hard time. I I was angry. I was, you know, all of these things. And I refused help, right? So Parker's born and he has, we have this super easy delivery. I kind of have this like feeling afterwards, like, oh, that was so great. I could do that 700 more times wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very anticlimactic. You know, I, it was just, it was so easy and he came out a little blue, but he pinked right up and everything was fine. And the first few weeks, I just kept thinking like something just doesn't sit right. And I know people will equate a lot of that to me and my behavior and my depression, honestly, because it was untreated. And when Parker, I was about to go back to, I was actually my first day back at work post maternity leave. I got a phone call. So he was at this point, 12 weeks old, 13 weeks old. Mm -hmm. I got a phone call or I got home, I'm sorry, from work and we had a nanny and I came home and I said, oh, how was everything? And she said, oh, it was okay. But Parker, he hasn't had very much milk today and he's vomiting a lot. And I thought, oh, well, you know, babies kind of throw up a little bit. And I walked over to him in his swing and he was pale white. And I looked at him and immediately knew something was wrong. I threw him in the car. I called our pediatrician and she was like, well, our office is about to close. So you might want to go to urgent care. Cool. Thanks. That's helpful. (laughs) So I get him to urgent care. They take 10 seconds of looking at him and they start calling. They call Cook's Children's for what they call the, as I know now, the teddy bear transport, which is their ambulance. And they're trying to get an IV in him. He's not crying. He's not blinking. He's just listless and he's pale And I'm just looking at him thinking, you know, almost like I willed this onto him, which was such a crazy feeling that this was almost something that I was projecting, if you will. Right, right, right. 
they get him and they get him to the hospital and we go through every test, meningitis, you know, shaken baby syndrome. We were accused of all sorts of crazy things. And at one point he's in the hospital bed and he's connected to all these EEG machines and he hadn't opened his eyes in a couple of days. He wasn't eating by himself. And a doctor walked in and told me that they were going to send him home. And I said, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. I said, this kid looks like he's going to die any second. You're not sending him home. And I will never forget. And this is really this part where I'm getting to that the advocacy began for me is I had a Mm -hmm. nurse who was the most wonderful human being ever. She walked in and she looked at me in the eyes and she, you know, they, they have limited things that they can say. And she said to me, Melissa, he came from you. Nobody knows this child like you do you have to be his voice. And I have carried those words with me the last six years like they were the Bible. And we ended up going through all these tests and I just kept saying, test, and I just kept saying, nope, that's, I I will not accept that. I will not accept that. And it turns out I wasn't wrong. He has a kidney condition called VRU. And I'm not even going to pretend to say the words because I'll embarrass myself, but it's essentially where the (laughs) bladder reflexes into the kidneys. And he had the worst stage of that. He could go into renal failure at any moment. Mm. Yeah, it was very serious. And they just kept wanting to say that he, you know, had GERD. I'm like, give me a break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, we go through this journey and he kept vomiting. He couldn't keep food down. He didn't like to be touched. And I just kept going back to the doctor saying something's not right. Something's not right. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I felt crazy, honestly. And eventually, he had 12 procedures. By the time he was one, Parker's been through some traumatic stress. And as Mm -hmm. somebody who holds a degree in child development, I kept asking, I kept saying, please don't make me be the person that holds him down. Please don't make me be the person that, you know, is what he sees when he's going through these techniques and these machines, because they essentially hogtie them. I mean, they have to, they're babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they kept saying, oh, he won't remember. I'm like, false. I I know he's not going to remember the cause of what makes him feel this way, but he's going to associate pain with me. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. does. He did. In the face. And for the first two years of his life, if he had another option, Parker would not let me feed him, hold him, change him, touch him. And it was because I was the face. My husband was gone with the military, and I was the face that he saw when he went through these traumatic things trying to find out what was wrong with him. and. That I think also sent me into a spiral because I wanted to help him so desperately, but I was also being forced to be the face behind his pain. And so Parker around two-ish, and it's hard not to compare to your older kids, right? He cringed when you touched him. He would much rather you prop a bottle in his mouth than you snuggle him like a normal baby, right? He wasn't talking. He was making these weird grunting noises. You could speak right in his ears and he wouldn't even look either direction for the sound. I mean, just strange, strange things. And I kept thinking, okay, mm-hmm. well, Kate's a girl. I can't compare to that. But my degree tells me that something's not right here. Mm-hmm. And that's really where this you know, advocation starts to begin. And I called our pediatrician and I kind of said, well, you know, I don't I don't think he's autistic or I know he's not autistic. And our pediatrician said, I never said he's not autistic. I said, we're just not ready to go there yet. Mm. And I think that was really important as we also had a pediatrician who was helping us advocate for Parker. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you don't like your doctor, you have every right to change them. Oh, yeah, if, if your doctor doesn't feel good to you, change your doctor. And that's what we ended up doing. Our pediatrician originally wasn't helping us. So I mm-hmm. found a different one. But we go through this really traumatic experience of trying to figure out what's going on with him. And he isn't talking. He It appears that he's deaf. And so we go through the process to find out if he's deaf. And it's just test after test after test after head beating after head beating after head beating mm-hmm. to come up with very minimal answers. And I felt so defeated because something wasn't right. Yeah. And our health system wants to check boxes often. And I have tremendous respect for our doctors and our nurses, but some kids don't fit into the box and have to think outside of the box to make sure that we're not failing them. And 
Parker is that kid that just, you know, even now his therapist call him consistently inconsistent. What he will do one day, he will not <laughs> do the next. He just didn't fit into this tidy little checklist box. And so by the time he was three, we started early childhood intervention, which is ECI, which almost, well, everybody has access to. If you don't know that, that there you go. And it takes a while because those are state-funded services and they are overloaded, overworked, and underfunded. And they have a very high turnover rate for those very reasons. So getting Parker mm-hmm. service through ECI took a little bit. But once we started getting him service, we started speech. We started something called IMH, which is infant mental health, to work on our bond because Parker, I mean, I joked all the time that I felt like he hated me. And he he didn't hate me. He just associated pain with me. So we go through ECI, we get him get him these services to start helping. And even through these services, I just kept saying, I don't think it's just a speech problem. I don't think it's just that he's got a little bit of PTSD here. Again, I was made to feel crazy. And so after ECI, you get referred to the school system. And the school system gets to decide if they're going to service your kiddos or not. And there's a lot to be said about that. Their diagnostic skills are interesting at best. But they're, they're making decisions based off of educational decisions only. How will this affect them in the classroom? They are not making decisions off of anything else, just to be perfectly clear. And educationally, what they decided is that it wouldn't affect Parker enough to service him through the school district, which left us through private care only. And that, you know, that's an expensive money, 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 money. money. And at the time, our insurance, you know, it was $75 to see an occupational therapist every single time. And they wanted to see him three times Mm -hmm. a week. And I remember this very clearly. And this is where I kind of began realizing even more so than in that hospital room when she said this to me, I was pregnant with Porter, our third, and emotional, of course, and wanting, I'm just begging for help for Parker because it's mm-hmm. not its not okay that he's banging his head on a wall. It's not okay that he doesn't want to be touched. It's not okay that he doesn't eat anything. These things are not normal. This is not a mm-hmm. typical functioning kid. Somebody has to help me and nobody would. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the room with all of these people through the school district. And it was a school district I worked for, by the way, which felt even more frustrating. She looked at me and she said, and I quote, there is something wrong with your son, but we cannot help him here. And those words, first of all, made me want to vomit. (laughs) Second of all, cut me so harsh (laughs) to my soul that I determined in that room that nobody would not help me ever again. And I was on a rampage. Someone was going to help Parker because I couldn't do it alone. And I walked out of that room and I was not the same person. And I, I couldn't help but mourn, not just for Parker, but for every kid like Parker who doesn't have a parent who knows not to take that answer. And I just couldn't shake the feeling that there were all these kids out there not being helped and their parents were so defeated by that, that I had to do something. And by doing something for Parker, that eventually I would learn enough to teach other people how to do it too. And so Parker continued to get serviced through private care And eventually, most kids with autism, you can detect it usually between 18 months and two years, but most kids aren't officially diagnosed until three, usually confirm that diagnosis when they're a little bit older, like five or six. Uh, About a year and a half ago, we took Parker to one of the best developmental pediatricians in the area. And he spent five minutes with Parker. And keep in mind, I'm, I'm advocating this whole time for a diagnosis for yeah. Parker because I believe he's autistic. He has all these red flags. He has all these markers. And people keep saying, well, he talks. Well, he does this. Well, he does that. Well, that's really great. But it's called the spectrum for a reason, my friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we go to the developmental pediatrician and um, he spends literally less than 10 minutes with him. And he says... Oh, he's for sure autistic. We're not talking about that. We're going to talk about how we're going to help him. Isn't that so fresh? I mean, I can't imagine Uh, the amount of frustration, first of all. Like, yeah. yeah. And I cried and I 
I just, I mean, uncontrollable tears. And he said, you will never not have help for Parker again. And, you know, this, at this point has been five years of begging for people to help me and, or us, I guess, you know, I mean, Matt was there too. Yeah. I, I just felt so relieved and I felt validated. I'd been called a lot of things. I had CPS called on me because I was accused of having Munchausen by proxy. I'm mm-hmm. not even kidding. Yeah. And that happens a lot. It wasn't that I was crazy. It was that I knew something was wrong. I Absolutely. knew he needed help. And that's where I really think that mother's intuition is so important is that I didn't give up. And I thought yeah. to myself, I remember the first time CPS was called and and I remember thinking to myself, you would rather take my son away from me while I am fighting for him. If that's wrong, then arrest me today because I will not stop. If it is wrong to dig deep and keep asking the questions and keep saying, nope, I I think that that's not correct. And I'm I'm not talking, we went to 10 different doctors here. We went to two. Yeah. This was people in the school district being personally offended that I questioned them. And that's part of the mm-hmm. problem is we've given power to people who they get to make objective decisions and box check. And it's about funding and it's about money. And mm-hmm. Parker didn't fit that box. And so, well, if we can service this kid or another kid, we're not going to service Parker. This kid's worse. Mm-hmm. This kid needs us more. And that's the fundamental problem with our education system right now. We're deciding who needs, you know, who needs what more. And Parker just was always on that cusp. And since then, Parker has is getting serviced in school. He does qualify for special education, but that, you know, it's you feel bad being validated by that. That's kind of how we've come here to this point with him. But it was a hard journey and it took a lot of advocating. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, Parker is extremely lucky to have you. And I have a question now for you. Yeah. If you could go back, would you have changed any, like looking back now and and seeing how everything played out, would you have changed anything? Like, would you have, you know, went to a different pediatrician earlier? Like what, what would you say to a mom that's in the midst of like what you were going through when Parker was say three years old? Like what would you have, you know, expedited? Yeah, I would tell her that that I mean that's a hard question, but I I wouldn't I would have started advocating for him earlier and not just mm-hmm. accepting the system as so. What I have learned is it's like this closet set of resources that until you take the hammer and start knocking down the walls, you don't know that it's there. Um you yeah. have to go look for the door. Nobody's opening it for you. And Mm -hmm. I hate that, but it's the truth. And that's probably not the truth everywhere. And of course, this is my own personal experience. But if I, if I, if she was sitting in front of me, I would tell her early intervention is essential. Even if the early intervention through, you know, services like ECI, even if it's not great, it's better than nothing. And Mm -hmm. I just would say the earlier you start advocating, the better. And if I could go back and undo or redo anything, it's that I wouldn't have waited so long to get angry. Yeah. Yeah. Now, would would you have been able to find this? How did you find this developmental pediatrician? Did you like word of mouth or just with your own research or? Well, there's, you know, 700 Facebook groups and I found, yeah. a, yeah, okay. I found a local autism mom group to me. But originally, we were sent to a psychologist to have Parker diagnosed, and the school didn't like that. She was nice, but I think that there's something more powerful to a developmental pediatrician. But they have long, you know, they have long waiting lists. There's lots of kids who need to see developmental mm-hmm. pediatricians, and that specialty is very understaffed, if you will. So mm-hmm. I went to our local mom's group and I started researching. I start, Google's powerful if you use it in the right way. And I uh, luckily enough um, found some moms just through basic conversation and, oh yeah, my kid's autistic. Oh, great. And through that Facebook group, I found our developmental pediatrician and this is what he does. He only diagnoses kids on the spectrum because he thinks it's so underserviced. Mm-hmm. But you can also call your 
believe it or not, your insurance company and ask them. Okay. Even if it's an out-of-service provider, they have a list. The problem is, is a lot of insurances use the same ones, if that makes sense. So we were lucky Mm -hmm. enough that our developmental pediatrician did take our insurance, but had he not, I would have paid whatever I needed to pay to have Parker properly diagnosed. And when I went in there, I'm like, hey, if he's not autistic, he's not autistic, but tell me what he is. (laughs) Besides, yeah, yeah, so that we can help him. And that's, that's, that's truthfully where we found him. Yeah. So what are the earliest, I know you said to try to seek early intervention is the first step, obviously, you know, going to your pediatrician, talking to them, if you're not satisfied with that, maybe even finding a different pediatrician, getting a second opinion. And then you mentioned, was it ECI? Is that going to be like the next step? Yep. So your pediatrician will okay. refer you to ECI. And really, the your pediatrician has, and forgive me, I don't know what the piece of paper is called, but they have a developmental milestone checker that essentially, if you answer these questions one way or another, puts a red flag up for autism. And mm-hmm. Parker just wasn't continuously meeting enough of those check marks where our pediatrician was very, I think he was careful. He didn't want to jump the gun. Parker was doing certain things, but not others. So one, make sure that your pediatrician knows your concerns if you have any about their development. And if you don't know, because this is your first kid, have that conversation. And I don't want everybody to run off and be terrified that their kid's autistic. But if you are not asking questions, you can't be surprised when there's no answers at the end of that. And so I would absolutely suggest just making sure that your pediatrician is tracking development, that you're tracking development. And then yes, from there, if there's any concerns, especially about speech or motor development, they will refer you to ECI, which is early childhood intervention. And then from ECI, they come in and do their own evaluations and determine what services they need and how often they need it. Okay. And those are also Perfect. usually cost share. So it's it's based off of how much money you make. And Mm -hmm. as well as if you have insurance. So there are a lot. Don't be scared that you're not going to get services because it's going to cost you too much money. That's that's usually not their first priority, which is their credit. Yeah. Yeah. And I I love this conversation because I think, you know, someone, you know, someone listening might say, Oh, I'm worried about my my child, and they don't really know where to start. You know, I mean, they might go to their pediatrician, but the answer might have been the same as yours, which is, you know, essentially we don't see anything wrong. Yep. And where do you go from there? You know, what resources are there? And so I think it's really important to talk about what's one of the biggest misconceptions do you think when it comes to autism? (laughs) That it looks like something. (laughs) there's nothing that will make my skin crawl more than when people say, well, Parker doesn't look autistic. Well, I'm really glad that he doesn't look like some predefined notion that you have in your head of what autism looks like. And that is, I think that's the hard part is people forget that it's called a spectrum for a reason. I mean, when you look at a line graph, if you will, there's a far left and a far right, and most kids fall somewhere in between there. And where he is strong in some senses, he is very low in others. So for example, Parker is verbal, but he wouldn't look at people in the eyes for really until about a year ago. He still doesn't dress himself. He still doesn't toilet completely by himself. And so it's a spectrum. And often people see him behaviorally and think he's out of control, which we can talk about. But he doesn't, autism doesn't look like anything. It's a developmental disability and you can't see his brain. And he's, you know, he's also a six-year-old boy, which makes him a little rambunctious. But I think that's, that's it is what, well, it, it's supposed to look like something. Well, I'm not sure what that is, but I wish people would stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me about a typical day with Parker. How does it, what does it look like? Sure. So he wakes up. Um, Parker is medicated now. So that's one of the first things that we do is we make sure we get his medicine in him so that he has a successful day. But Parker goes to school. He's in first grade. And so if it's a school week, he gets up around 630 if he's had a good night's sleep, eats, heads to school, and he holds himself together for about eight hours there. And he does get service through special education when necessary. And then he comes home. And that's really where Parker's day starts to fall apart because he's used every coping skill, every mechanism he Mm -hmm. has to fit in at school. 
And he comes home and he lets all that out. So when he gets home, we try to feed him because Parker gets very angry, <laughs> angry, if you will. Try to keep him fed and we, we have to keep him occupied. If Parker's left to his own devices, that's when he becomes impulsive. He also has what they refer to as ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. And so his brain mm-hmm. literally triggers him to do the opposite of what you say. And so language with Parker is very important. You cannot speak to him like you speak to any other kiddo. And the rules are different for him, which is hard for our other kids, to be honest with you. But when he gets home, we try to keep him occupied. He goes to therapy twice a week for speech, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. If he is given the opportunity to get in trouble, he will. And he needs constant sensory input. So he loves spinning. Um, We have a little tree spin uh, swing that he will spin in until he vomits. (laughs) We have to, they call him a sensory seeker. So he doesn't get normal sensory input. So we have to give him sensory input. We help Parker dress. We help him toilet. He can go to the bathroom by himself. He's potty trained, but he has struggles with things like wiping and brushing his own teeth. We're really proud of him because he started taking baths without ripping out our hair. So that seems like a really big, <laughs> big win for us. But that's a, that's a typical day for him. He's in therapy mm-hmm. about four hours a week, which is a pretty low end, honestly. But we just have to keep him occupied. And then we he does take medicine in the evening. He eats and then he goes to bed usually about 7.30. But that afternoon witching hour for him is really hard typically where we see him become the most violent and that he, his psychiatrist will tell you he's, he really can't control himself. Yeah. All right. So tell us about any other resources that we may not have heard of or known about. I think the first one is usually typically ECI is knowing that you can get early intervention and that that's a free service to you. You're that's a state funded service and everyone has the right to be evaluated by that if they if they should choose. The next thing is private care therapy that you have you're allowed to go ask for physical therapy. You're allowed to go ask for occupational therapy. I mean, you may have to pay for it, but that's also available yeah. to you. And then services through schools. I think a lot of people don't realize that th- uh, schools have speech therapists. Schools have occupational therapists. Your kid just has to qualify for it and that's that you know, that's a different issue, but it's it's difficult to qualify for. Okay. So two questions. So first is how long did it specifically take you? I know you said it was kind of a process because it's government funded, but with ECI, how long did it take you to get hooked up with that? Not, not terribly long. I think there, the waiting list was about three weeks, if I recall correctly. And it's, you know, it's been quite a few years, but we did have to wait, I think almost a month for the initial evaluation. And then we probably had to wait another couple of weeks to actually be seen by a therapist at that point. So from start to finish before he actually started getting serviced, I think it was probably almost two months. But we did not start that path until he was already a year old, which is okay. But early intervention, especially for kids like Parker, is key. So again, it just rolls back to making sure that you like your pediatrician and that you have candid conversations about your concerns. I think we're afraid to go inside of a doctor's office and say, well, I disagree with you because we don't have an MD behind our name. But again, I think that's where I would just say, you know your kid. And if you're concerned, tell them. And if you're concerned, tell them again. And if you're still concerned, tell them again, because there does come a point where your doctor can't ignore you. Yeah. What is something you wish somebody would have told you regarding having a child on the spectrum? <laughs> Try not to cry. I don't know how you've kept it together the whole time. <laughs> you got me with that one. There were, I'm like, I was, I was tearing up over here. I was like, Lindsay, just drink your coffee. <laughs> yeah, Lindsay. You're like, you- <laughs> honestly, that you're a good mom and that it's not your fault. And that if you're showing up for them every single day, even on the days that you just don't want to, that you do come out on the other side, but you can't give up. And I wish someone would have looked at me and said, you're not wrong, Melissa, but you can't give up. Even when you're getting your hair ripped out and you're getting told that they hate you and that, you know, you're getting your, pardon me, your ass kicked by your own kid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that it, that you're a good mom 
and that you love them and that they love you. And if someone had looked me in the eyes and told me I wasn't crazy, I think it would have saved us a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a story it's, and I was tearing, you know, when I teared up the first time was when you told me you were in the hospital when he was 12 weeks and the nurse and what she said, and then how, like how I feel like these things don't just happen. They happen specifically for a reason. Like those words echoing throughout his entire early childhood. I mean, it was powerful. Yeah, it is. Especially it's very powerful. He said it in a time, you know, when you come into a hospital and Parker's had, he's had a third degree burn. He's broken his clavicle because he's a sensory seeker. He's looking for those sensory inputs. So he's had a lot of accidents. Mm-hmm. There is a fear of going to the hospital that someone's going to say like, you guys come here quite a bit. What's going on? Oh yeah, for sure. Especially because he was an infant. And that's why the diagnosis was so important to me because I wanted there to be a reason that he did these things so that people would stop questioning us as parents. People would yeah. stop putting the blame on us. I didn't take this, you know, he took he he touched his hand to my hair straightener because he wanted to see if it was really hot. He was jumping from chair to chair trying to fly and he broke his collarbone. And the fear that I have and the anxiety I have that when something happens to Parker that I have to go to the hospital is unreal, mm-hmm. especially having experience now with CPS. But I remember when Parker was hospitalized when he was an infant and my sweet husband, who was so naive, people kept coming in out of that room and they were asking a lot of questions, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And I knew what they were asking and I knew who they were. And I remember he, they left the room and Matt said, gosh, those were kind of strange questions. Don't you think? And I said, Matt, they think we did this to him. They think that he's in that bed because we did something to him like shaken baby syndrome or that Mm -hmm. our nanny had. And I couldn't shake the feeling of failure. Right. I had failed him. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be pregnant. I said something was wrong with him and now he's lying in this bed and everything that I thought was coming true and that now they're going to take him from me or he's not leaving because he dies here. Right. Right. It was very intense and it affected our marriage. It affected our other kids, but I will never forget even with those types of people coming in and out of the room and she still came in. She didn't have to say that to me. She just looked at me straight in the eyes and told me that no one will ever know him like I do. And she wasn't wrong. It's powerful. It's amazing. Yeah. It is. And if I could go find her at Cook's and give her right? a hug. Oh my gosh. Oh, that would mean what so I would to her, her I now versus then. Right. You know? Yeah. It's amazing. I, I feel like, you know, I think some of us always have this, this one person that we can even say like, Hey, listen, like this person changed my life with something they said. And, and just to kind of keep that in mind, when you see somebody else struggling or know somebody struggling and what can I say to this person that will really resonate with them and that they can carry with them, like through this difficult time, you know? And, and you never want to be invasive to somebody's life, but if you have a gut feeling to say something, do it. Because if she hadn't said that, who knows what the course of Parker's life would have looked like. In that moment too, where, you know, CPS was called it, first of all, I mean, that's, it's such a difficult, it's such a difficult thing to navigate. I mean, I don't work with pediatrics. I work in an adult ER, but of course these people, you know, they're, they're only trying to do what they think is best. Right. And so, you know, 10 times out of 10, I would say call if you're unsure, but gosh, to be on the other side of that and to know that like all you're doing is advocating for your child. Like, I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, I understood when we were in the hospital, okay, he's got a burn. That makes sense to me. He's broken his collarbone. That makes sense to me. He looks like he's, you know, he's not awake. That makes sense to me. But I I, w- I struggled for a very long time because CPS was called after Parker's initial ARD decision or the ARD meeting is what they hold to have an individual education plan for him in, in uh, pre-K, which is where we were advocating for him for kindergarten. And someone in that room used words that I used as a cry for help against me to call CPS right. and to accuse me of having Munchausen by proxy and to accuse me of insurance fraud, that he was being serviced by his private care providers for no reason. And it hurt because these are the people that I'm supposed to trust with my child. Right. These are the people that I consider my colleagues. These are the people that are supposed to help. And of course, you know, I, th- I think back to the times that I've had to call CPS as a teacher or as an administrator. And, 
you know, if you don't know, you call because you you don't know. But right, I that's felt, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, but I just felt so betrayed, of course, because I was just trying to help Parker. So that was really that was a really hard thing for me. Now, of course, nothing was found and everything is okay. But I carried with that with but me still, for really. I mean, time. yeah, yeah. It's a risk, but again, if advocating for him is wrong, then lock me up in jail. I'll advocate from there. Yeah. I, I, I've got a really loud voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. I yell. <laughs> so, is there anything <laughs> I wanted to dive into? A few um, questions from the community. Do you have anything though that you want to add to the conversation so far before we jump into those? I just want to say, you know, I know how isolating this journey can be. And if you've met one autistic kid, you've met one autistic kid. So don't compare apples to apples because there is no comparison. But you are not alone. I This journey, you are going to get uninvited. <laughs> People are, well, stop inviting you to birthday parties because you show up late and you leave early. People are going to stare at you in the grocery store when your kid is having a having an episode, people are going to judge you, people are going to insert their comments. But just know that you're not alone in that. And you know, one, you can always reach out to me, but to find someone who you trust to put those feelings into because otherwise you will be alone and you will lose yourself in those feelings. And you know, that's a slippery slope. So as isolating as this is, you are not by yourself. Yeah. I love that. You know, I, I I know you mentioned this within here, and and as much as I despise Facebook, which I will absolutely say out loud, oh my I gosh, know. don't get me started. But but yeah, it it is really helpful when trying to find like you know mothers that are going through the same it thing is. as you, especially when it comes to things like this. You can just type in the search box, you know, and find these groups that you can be a part of. And and if you don't like what they're saying, leave, find a new one, you know, 100%. and. You don't like it, just leave. Uh, um, if you like what I have to say, yeah. there's a big unfollow button you can use. Too. There, there you go. And guess what? You don't even have to announce your departure. You can just uh, go. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so let's let's go into a couple of these. Let's see. I know some of them we might have touched on, so I will skip, but. Is, let's just talk about like the earliest signs on when you can be- begin to intervene. Like when you when you see your child doing these certain things, does something in your head to start to spark and say, "Ooh, something doesn't feel right here." Yeah, I think uh, basic developmental things. You know, a lack of fine motor skills. If they if they seem incapable of looking you in, in the eyeballs, um, these things are a little bit easier as they get a little bit older. Obviously. Communication is key, but there are verbal autistic kids, but often their verbal uh, abilities are delayed. I think making noises, if they seem to excessively spin or self-inflict wounds, (laughs) all of those Mm -hmm. things are big red flags that you will see very early on in most cases. So I know obviously you're not uh, medically trained per se, but obviously have a lot of experience within all of this. What is the latest research that you've seen saying, you know, what the cause of autism is specifically? I know somebody had asked this, so I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are. Yeah, I do get the vaccine question in my inbox on Instagram quite quite frequently. I bet you do. I do. Um, I do not believe, and most medical professionals as well as scientists have not have been able to debunk to this point any link of uh, vaccinations to autism. It's it appears to be very genetically based, uh, whether that happens, you know, in utero or there's maybe some environmental factors, but I do not believe for a second vaccines cause Parker's autism. And in fact, I if you have a boy, a child, a male child with autism, you are, I believe, four times more likely to have subsequent sons with autism and neither Porter or Preston are autistic. And I vaccinated both of them, just to be very clear. So mm-hmm. I do not believe mm-hmm. that autism is linked to vaccinations. And, and so far, science and data support that. They do believe it's a genetic mutation. It's a it's a developmental disability. And so where that happens and how that happens, they're not quite sure yet. But as they continue to do this research, it links more and more back to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
how can we be sensitive and supportive to family members or, you know, uh, friends who have a child who is autistic or, you know, significant ADHD or things like that? How can we, you know, be sensitive and supportive to you? I think uh, the most loving question you can ask me is how can I communicate with Parker that is helpful? Parker Mm -hmm. doesn't speak you know, he speaks like a 35 year old scientist. Okay. He's very, he loves to be <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he's very matter of fact, very black and white. There's no gray with that child, but you cannot treat mm-hmm. him like you would treat a typical six year old child because one, he's too intelligent. Mm-hmm. You can't trick him. And two, he's just, that's how his brain works. His brain is very literal. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't make sense to him, he doesn't care. But what happens a lot is when he gets frustrated, he loses his ability to speak. And so he acts out in violence because he can't control the environment, but he can control how he reacts to it. And so that's why we see a lot of violence in autistic kids is they lose control because they're trying to control something. The best thing that you can do is ask how to communicate and what would, I'm not expecting the world to change themselves for Parker. I do have to teach Parker how to assimilate into the world, but simple communication of, Hey, we know we're having a birthday party. Would it be better if we had a separate table for Parker or how Mm -hmm. can we include Parker? How can we make it so that he can participate as opposed to just assuming that he can't participate at all? Yeah. And like you said, I mean, every child is different, right? Like you said, it's a spectrum. And so, you know, the way that you interact with one child that has autism is certainly not going to be the way you interact with another. Yeah, he is completely different than the next autistic kid. And so I think the most loving thing you can do is we love Parker. We want him to be included. How can we do that? That's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. So I know you mentioned that you do medicate him. So yeah. how do you know when it may be time to medicate? I, just speaking from your personal experience, like how did you know it was time? Yeah, I'm not a doctor. Obviously, we're a nurse. Um, I love them. I've been around a lot of them. <laughs> I feel like I, I've paid to have a wing in a hospital at this point, but yeah. <laughs> Honestly, for me, medication was really difficult because as a teacher, as an administrator, I saw parents who just didn't maybe know better or, you know, whatever the case might be, almost sedate their kids so that they'd be able to get through the school day and not get in trouble or be affected by that. And I didn't want that for just Parker. So I didn't want personality oh to be lost because he's hilarious. Yeah. I did not want that loving sweetness of him to be gone. And so medication was a really, really hard one for me because I wanted to make sure that we were treating the cause, not just the symptoms, right? We did not start medicating Parker until he was in kindergarten and he could not control himself. He was not learning. Mm -hmm. He was licking his teacher's toes. He had no sense of control. And I realized that he couldn't be that kid in school. You know, I I had Mm -hmm. to help him be successful in school. And that's really when the, you know, with the developmental pediatrician and I brought up that concern and he said, Melissa, if you have the right psychiatrist, he will be on the right medicine. He was like, don't go to some Joe Schmo who just writes you a prescription and never follows up. You need to be with a psychiatrist who is constantly monitoring, constantly making sure that Parker is okay. And we were lucky enough to find that um, on our second try, not on our first try. And so medication has done wonders for Parker. It has completely changed his life and ours. He still struggles, but he's a completely different kid because he feels better. So I think the decision is personal, but I also think that you just have to have a relationship with the people who are prescribing it to you. Absolutely. So one more question, and then I have just two questions I always ask my interviews that I'll ask you before we end. So, and I feel like this is an important question because I mean, I've experienced this with my own children where I feel like I feed them one thing and then the next minute they're acting crazy. (laughs) Have you, have you seen that with Parker's diet that what you feed him does affect certain behaviors? I think nutrition affects anybody. The hard part about autism, and this is where people I think get a little judgmental or a little high horsey is They're very impulsive, but they're also super controlling. You know, they have feeding issues and all of these things. But Parker, for two years, would only eat a cheeseburger with cheese and ketchup only from McDonald's. And so I had to make a decision. Do I force feed him and traumatize him from food for the rest of his life? 
Or do we just get through this phase where we only eat these cheeseburgers? I know it's, I mean, granted, I'm not, I'm not dumb. I know that's not great for him, but I'd rather him be fed than starving. And slowly we're able to allow him to experience other foods, but we had to let him control what he was eating first. And so there are absolutely things that from nutrition that I know affect Parker because they would affect any kid, but because of his, his, you know, brain function, he's in control of that. And I'm not going to be able to convince him to eat broccoli if he doesn't want to eat broccoli. But I know that if he doesn't eat just like anybody else, he's going to be a disaster because he's starving. So I do think that nutrition plays a huge part. And as they, as he has gotten older, that has, that part has actually become much easier for us to get him to eat different foods and a more balanced, nutritious lifestyle. But I would say that if you're in the trenches, that is not the thing you should be worried about from the beginning. Do not, (laughs) if they want to eat chicken nuggets and they're willing to eat the chicken nuggets, let them eat the chicken nuggets. Because that's your battle. <laughs> and you don't want to create a traumatic experience. We have learned through feeding therapy how traumatic food association can be. He will they exactly. will come around to it. It may not be ten different variety of things, but you know, he'll eat fruits and vegetables now. But if I had fought that fight over the cheeseburger, then I don't think that that would be the case, you know? And so Mm-hmm. Yeah. Autistic kids are also very repetitive in their behavior and they control what they can control. So he can control that he wants a cheeseburger. So he's going to control that. Right. But now, right. we're able to, you know, we can negotiate a little bit more with him now, which is nice. But I, I, I do, I do agree that nutrition affects everything, but I would say that that is not your biggest concern in mm-hmm. the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's end with, I mean, we could go on with more, more I know. questions, but. <laughs> It's a large, vast topic, which is difficult, but you know, I appreciate you hitting the highlights with me. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that this is it's just it's so helpful for those that are, you know, even entering this realm or in the midst of it and just knowing your experience and even being able to reach out to you if they have questions, that sort of thing, I think it's gonna be so great. So thank you so much for that. So two questions for you. The first is, and this doesn't have to be related to the talk whatsoever. These are completely unrelated. If you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would it be? Oh, that's hard. I know. Oh, <laughs> to not let society tell you how to raise your children. They came from you. They are loved by you. They are fed and held and comforted by you. You get to decide what's best for your kids and how best to um, nurture them into being good humans. And yeah, society doesn't get to dictate that for you. Yeah. And social media. <laughs> yeah. And social media. Oh my God. That is like such a, that's, that's one of my biggest things right now. And one of the reasons why I, I really, I can't wait to leave. And I may mean, love it for so many reasons. Don't get me wrong. And people misunderstand me all the time. There have been, I mean, I am forever grateful for the platform that was built and for everybody I've met and all of those things. But, but, and the most important thing is that, and I've gone through this myself where it is so easy to go on there and get lost in yourself, literally, and then say, what is my life, right? And a constant comparison and it's impossible not to. It is impossible. It is. My platform was not developed to, you know, share swipe ups. It was developed for community and belonging and love. And I mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't have a place to belong. And so I wanted to create something that I would feel invited to. Yeah. And it's grown into something, you know, a little bit different. Of course, I, you know, I'm a curvy girl, so I like to yeah. share empowering women to feel okay in their own skin. But that stems from not feeling okay for so long because of postpartum depression. And yeah, yeah. You know, I had a really traumatic journey with that. I, I, I didn't want to live anymore. And that was really difficult. Different, different episode for a different day, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, I'll meet you back here. Look at you uh, now. I know. But that is really hard for me now is, is the comparison game. And, you know, uh, Instagram breeds an environment that can often feel competitive. That's why I think my Instagram for me is so important because I want to show the real and the raw 
but that's also difficult because I'm allowing people to judge how I raise my children. Of course. It's it's such a catch-22 and I, I completely understand what you're saying because I really, there's nothing more I love than to educate. And, you know, I've, I've really done this 360 where people are like, wait, what last year you were talking only about this. And now this year you're talking about COVID and vaccines. I don't like it. And I'm like, well, you don't have to like it, right? It's, it's my platform. Whether people agree or, or disagree with you, you know, I'll, there's been a few things that you've said. And I'm like, well, I don't really agree with that, but I really like Lindsay and I know she's educated and her and I could have an educated discussion about something. And I think that's yeah, what And we don't, yeah. and we absolutely, like what a boring, I tell this to people all the time, yes. what a boring world it would be if you agreed with everything I said. Yes. Hell? <laughs> that's wild to me. No, I think even as a special needs mom, that's what's infuriating is you don't have to agree with me about the choices that I've made for my special needs son, but that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It doesn't mean that I have failed him or that I'm doing it incorrectly. It just means I've done it differently than you. And I think that's what's so hard is I want people to feel less isolated. I want women to have a place at the table. I want to have conversations where we, you know, we've lost this ability to agree to disagree on everything. Yeah. And it's infuriating. And that's what I want to project on Instagram, that it can be a safe place, that there is a place where you belong. But I do know by doing what I'm doing, and you know, I call myself a grade A McDonald's mom, not a Pinterest mom. <laughs> where I, I do a little spiel called Wanna Know How I Know I'm a Better Mom Than You. And it's just all of the ways that I'm failing at motherhood. And it's funny, it's meant to be funny, you know, to pick the things apart that sometimes are really hard in motherhood. But if we cannot laugh at them, then what are we doing with our yeah. lives? Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I totally get where you're coming from in your exhaustion because by doing that, I'm allowing people, one, to misinterpret my sarcasm and two, right. to, to make a judgment call about how I'm raising my family. Mm-hmm. Well, I have an incredible community. Shout out to what we call the 7FC, the 7 Friends community. They, they are good, good women and they feel you know belonging, which I love. I, I don't get as much hate as I think other people do, but I do I do know that that day comes and it has come, especially when I talk about Parker. So I totally understand your exhaustion. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question yeah. is if you could make any meal for your family that you know that everybody would eat, that's quick and easy, what would it be? And it doesn't even have to be something you make. It could be McDonald's. <laughs> Because oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> um, well, it comes in this oh my red box that has yellow tabs at the top. <laughs> and if you get to the drive-thru really, really at the right time, it takes less than five minutes. So There you go. Great day so McDonald's, awesome. Mom. Yes. Now, somebody asked me the other day if we only eat fast food or we only eat McDonald's. I said, no, we also eat Chick-fil-A twice a week. <laughs> <laughs> Mix it in with, uh, you know, sub- Subway or something else too, yeah. In my children's segment, <laughs> two of the four, their favorite food is salad with chicken. So, okay, I'm not doing so bad. Yeah, there you go. And I am a terrible cook. My parents both ran restaurants. They are so ashamed of me. They say that I don't like flavor. <laughs> I have failed them 100%. But I make a mean spaghetti and my kids will eat that until their faces turn blue. So if, I, if I'm making yeah. something which I don't do often. I think my stove feels neglected by me, but it's 100% going to be spaghetti. And I know every single one of them is just going to suck it down. And then I'm going to throw them in the bathtub afterwards. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I love it. Or McDonald's. <laughs> completely honest. <laughs> oh, it's so funny because my I was working on Friday. And so my husband had to bring my child to uh, practice. And she, he's like, it's it's five to six thirty. Like, what are they yes. doing? So he's like, I don't know. So he he's he's like, I get home and he's like, Yeah, you know, just threw on some frozen, got some McDonald's, sat in the car. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Like, it's great. And so my kids, when I got home, they were like beyond excited about these toys. That they of got. course I mean, they were. <laughs> you are chipping their childhood if you're not, you know, getting these toys for them. Listen, Ugh. except I've created this pattern where my kids get angry when they get the same toy two times in a row. 
Yeah. Like, sorry, guys. We heard you off, and I apologize. Yeah. No, I wish, honestly, cooking is not my thing. And we live such a busy life, especially, I didn't mention this, but I'm an army wife. And so my husband's gone a lot. And my between therapy and my daughter is an all-star cheerleader, help us all. Porter <laughs> and having an infant, well, I guess he's not an infant now, a one-year-old, you know, I, I'm, I juggle a lot by myself. And I think that there's no shame in driving through the drive-through and admitting defeat when you have to. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Delegate, Absolutely. my friend. Delegate. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, it was so awesome chatting with you, Melissa. And thank you so much for all of your input and sharing your story with us. I know that it it can be hard to kind of relive all those things and extremely vulnerable. And we really appreciate it. Honestly, at this point, I'm I'm far enough removed from it where I'm at a place where I can talk about it. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity with you. And my only hope is, uh, again, to encourage you to advocate for your babies. You know them best. And remember, you're not alone. That's That's really important. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.